from socialservice.sg, I am Jing Yao. Today, we're joined by Prof. Gerard Sashas, author of the book Harder Work, Life in Singapore. The book is a collection of 60 stories of people in contemporary Singapore talking about their work and life. We discuss how he conceptualized the book and discuss the important elements of interviewing and ethnography. We also explored significant themes which emerged. Harder Work was shortlisted for the 2020 Singapore Literature Prize and was a finalist for Best Non-Fiction Title at the 2020 Singapore Book Awards. Prof. Sachs received a PhD from UC Berkeley in 2006. In 2012, he joined the National University of Singapore where he is an Associate Professor in the Department of Southeast Asian Studies. The book was co-authored with Eng Shiwen, a photographer, educator and chronicler of everyday life. She is the founder of Photo Riki and has taught at NUS and the School of the Arts, Singapore. Prof, um, thanks for joining us. And I thought we could start from the conceptualization of the book. Uh, I mean, you said that the interviews were conducted as part of a class you taught at NUS. So maybe tell us a little bit more about the class and uh, what you had your students do in terms of thinking through their position in society, the power dynamics involved in interviewing as well as listening and conversing. Thanks for suggesting this, this interview. And thanks to everyone who's, who's listening. I, I really appreciate this talk, a chance to, to talk a little bit about the book, which. Uh, which I like a lot and I hope more people read. Yeah, maybe I can talk a little bit about the, the, the genesis of this. I have to sort of preface this by saying I'm not actually a, a trained ethnographer. I am a historian, but I like talking to people. And uh, I've spent a lot of my time uh, over the last 20 years in Asia uh, talking to folks, initially in, in Vietnam, where I lived for uh, about 12 years. And then uh, since coming to Singapore, simply because, you know, I, I figure if you live in a place, you sort of have to be curious about it. And one way to learn more about it is by talking to, to ordinary folks. And so uh, I enjoyed it so much when I was in, and it was such an important sort of learning tool for myself in Vietnam that uh, I started to do it with my students. Uh, while I was there, I was uh, the, I directed a program for the University of California where students from the United States would come and study in Vietnam. And uh, over the years, I, I changed the program so that I was teaching not just American students, but also the same number of Vietnamese students. And so we would form these teams uh, who would go out and uh, talk to Vietnamese about, about stuff. And um, the way we kind of got around potential political sensitivities uh, to this kind of research in Vietnam was by framing it in terms of work. Because, you know, uh, there's nothing political about work, right? But of course there is, because work is so intimately tied with everything. It's, it's, part, it's, it's most of what we do in our lives, in, in a sense, at least with our waking lives. So it was just this fantastic way for these students to kind of learn more about the, the, the lived reality of, of Vietnam today and, and what um, development is doing in terms of society, culture, uh, politics, consumption, all sorts of stuff. And so when, when I came to NUS, you know, I sort of said, well, this was such a great teaching tool in Vietnam. I want to do it in Singapore as well, even though I don't explicitly study Singapore. And so uh, I proposed a module and uh, luckily enough, they, they let me do it. 
Now you pointed in your question to the, you know, the, the, the really important issue of how do you get people to, you know, sort of listen, actually listen, have a conversation with, with, with others. Right. And uh, yeah, you know, so that's, that's tough. And uh, for, for many people, especially, you know, we're, we're, often we're, we're all good at sort of staying in our little worlds, uh, shall we say. And I think Singapore, the way society is structured is, is particularly effective at keeping people in their worlds on their tracks and not sort of interacting with people in other tracks in meaningful ways. And so, uh, so yeah, getting people to actually get out of their comfort zone and, and talk to people in, in other walks of life from other with, with very diverse experiences, getting them aware of how to sort of break down those, those barriers, how to kind of question their own assumptions about, you know, before they go into this discussion, to think critically about who they are and where they're coming from and who that person is and where they're coming from. And then honestly listen and, you know, pay attention and follow up. Um, these are all crucial, crucial skills. And so really the, that was the, 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 the practical side of, of this class was sort of a, a crash course, as it were, in, in, in listening and in really listening to others. And, you know, I think it, it, it worked. I mean, some students got better at it than others, um, but everybody, I think, improved over the course of the semester. And everybody, I think, started to really kind of be aware of, of the, the issues of, of, you know, their own position and their relationship to others in, in society through this, through this exercise. And if I had to say what the underlying goal, you know, the, the, to use sort of pedagogic speak, the, you know, learning outcome of this uh, it's not one that typically would show up in a, in a, in a, in a syllabus or the, the, the things we do in a module proposal. But if I had to say what the learning outcome of this was supposed to be, it would be empathy. And I think that's, uh, you know, honestly, uh, probably one of the more crucial skills that anyone can have. So if I helped push students a little bit further along in that process of, of developing empathy with others, then, yeah, then I think we, we achieved a, that learning outcome. And I can feel good about that. Yeah, and I'm interested in the interviewing component because um, we like to think of interviewing as being very intuitive, right? That you can do it from the get-go. But as you mentioned, and as someone who re is really interested in qualitative research, um, what the what assumptions and what biases the interviewer brings to the conversation interview is important to be bracketed. And it seems that it was something that was that came up over and over again. And in that vein, I was interested in some of the kind of guiding or semi-structured questions that you had your students prepare um, and how you prepared them for the interviews. Because a lot of the interviews and the book itself were really intimate and people were sharing really intimate details about their work and even about their life. So how do you go about preparing the questions and getting them ready for the interviews? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because typically the students, I think, would, would go through this, this process of, you know, initially they, they'd come up with, you know, questions that I want to ask, right? Um, and they'd have a whole list. And I think as as the semester went on, they realized that that maybe wasn't the most productive way to, to enter into this. You know, I think, mm, I, I can't say I systematized this terribly well, but, you know, we talked about the importance of, of trying to do a little, if, if possible, knowing something about the person you're talking to or being aware of, of their positions is, is, is crucial, sort of, you know, to being able to, answer, to ask 
meaningful questions, right? So some initial research into, you know, the, 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 who you're actually going to be talking to, I think is, is a crucial step. And then there's that question of, of positionality and, and, and interrogating your own position and your own assumptions that you may be bringing to this conversation. What I tried to do to in, encourage the students to, to do is, is not think of it so much in terms of, of questions, but rather themes that they want to touch on. And, you know, those sorts of themes are going to come out of their, their research, thinking about, like, who is this person? What might, you know, what might their experiences have been? What are some interesting things that I want to learn through that? Right? So just having students think of kind of, you know, based on their interrogation of that person and their, their own position, their prior research of, of these things, um, just try and come up with, with these sort of big themes that they want to, to touch on. And then in a sense, beyond that, I think the most crucial skill is, is just being willing to, to listen and being interested. When I've been doing these projects, you know, when I first started to do it, you know, I, I looked around at other projects that had been done in, in history. And, uh, you know, when, one of the first ones I came across were the kind of ethnographic works of the American journalist, Buds Perkle. And uh, I remember reading uh, who, who did these really awesome, you know, collections of interviews of, of, uh, of working people in, in the United States in the 60s and 70s. And I remember reading an, an, an interview of, of someone uh, after he'd passed on. And they said, like, the, if they could say why his interviews were so good, it's because when, when, whenever he sat down with somebody, he felt like you were just the most interesting person in the world. And, you know, I think... You know, that's something I really try to encourage the students to, to, to take with them in, into the, each interview, right? Like, really kind of think about how, how this person can be interesting, right? And I think, again, like, going back to that comment about how we live in our separate little worlds, we tend to assume that people outside those worlds are terribly interesting. And yet, in fact, because they're outside those worlds, they should be the most interesting people in the world because we have no idea what their experiences are like, typically. Yeah. And so if we can approach it honestly and just sort of be interested in that person, in their experiences, in their thoughts and their emotions and their responses, and, and really kind of somehow create that impression that you are genuinely, you genuinely want to know more, um, then I think that is really the key to a, a, a good interview. And, and the really kind of important part, at least for me as a reader, I know you mentioned you're a historian, but the ethnographic component of the book was really appealing to me because I was wondering how important it was for you that your student and your students that the interviews were conducted at the places or at the locations where your interviewees work. Because that came true where your students, I imagine, were at the places where the interviewees um, did their work or went about with their work. So how important was that component in, in the project? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that, that's part of like the, the sort of the, the, the practical aspect of doing interviews, right? And, and I think one of the most important things is do the interview where you're, that, the person you're interviewing will genuinely feel comfortable. So it, it might be their place of work. Um, certainly as, as part of your background research for doing the interview, you should have gone to that space of work and, and seen what it's like and tried to get some idea of what's going on there. But, uh, you know, the most important thing is like, make that person comfortable, right? Go to their world, not bring them to your world. And then, you know, then there's all sorts of these sort of practical things that we go through, like 
try and make sure it's someplace quiet enough that you can hear them or that you can record them on your phone. Uh, if they give you permission, things like that. Just these sort of practical things that that uh, you have to do to to have a successful interview. But yeah, uh, you know, the at, at a, ideally, if if the place of work is is a good place for the interview, I would encourage the students to do that. Um, but if not, then at least some place where where they are comfortable. You know, and again, it's it's part of that creating this this space where the the, the person that they're talking to feels you know, it feels like talking. And the other kind of decision you made was to organize, you know, these different stories across 13 categories. And not only did you organize the categories based on drinking, eating, making, repairing, so on and so forth, um, it felt quite deliberate in the choice of gerunds, right? So so action words, drinking, you were moving, you're protecting. So maybe tell us a bit more about how you decided to organize them across those categories and were there other kind of organizing principles that you used in organizing the book in that particular manner? The other big one, one, one thing that I've always been fascinated with in, uh, the, in, in these projects uh, are, are like spaces of work, places of work. So that, that was the other big competitor for me the, uh, for, for how to organize it, right? Because I love the idea of, of how things, the relationship of, of, of people and jobs within a, a certain space of work. And so I, we, we, we toyed with that one as well. But at the end of the day, just because of the the interviews we had and and and, and how they were kind of coming into dialogue, we decided to go with um, with with sort of actions. And you know, we tried to in, once we'd come up with that, and then we sort of put them in the chapters in order of I don't know, sort of sort of a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, it starts mm-hmm. off with things like eating, and then sort of gets some more abstract needs as as the book gets on goes mm-hmm. on but but yeah you know there's there's different ways to, to organize it and you know this is the one we came up with and, and you were teaching the course for a number of years so i guess the the question i have is at what point did you say hey this could be a book because you were teaching it for a number of years and at what point did you say let's put i mentioned you had more than 60 so you had to narrow down how did you decide that this was a time to uh, put them together in the form of a book yeah, well, you know, the when I did the the Vietnam book, the Vietnam project, I hadn't intended to to make it into a book. But then, you know, I got to NUS and I sort of had time to sort of uh, get out of the, the the patterns and the 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 the, the busyness. Vietnam has its own particular busyness, although it's also very relaxed in other ways. You know, sort of being in a diff- different place and sort of go, hey. We did these really great interviews. Let's um, let's let's see if the press is willing to put them into a book. So the Vietnam book came very much after the the classes had ended. But one big problem was that the uh, you know then I had to try and track down all the students to get their permission to use the interviews. Right now, luckily, the way I was teaching in Vietnam with a small program and, and really an intense program. You know, basically all over the world, Vietnam, and then wherever the the foreign students have gone over over the years, I was able to track them all down, all except one, honestly, which was I was pretty impressed. And they all said, "Sure, sure, Prof," signed it, sent it back to me, uh-huh. and so we we're good to go. But with the Singapore book, I was like, hmm, maybe let's let's try and preempt that. So with the when I started teaching the class, I was already thinking this could be a good book, and I'd already. Used talked with NUS Press and said, hey, the Vietnam book 
was pretty cool. Would you be interested in a Singapore book? And they said, yes. So from the start, we were, when I was doing the, the class, I was already thinking about doing it as a book. So, uh, so yeah, I would check with the students, see if they were willing at the end of each class, uh, at the end of each semester, I would say, Hey, would you be interested in participating? If yes, just sign this. And, uh, if not, uh, not, no problem. And, uh, then, you know, I sort of kept those on file. And then when we had, uh, I don't know, I guess, uh, 30 times time, I would say 150 interviews or so. Then I said, well, that's probably enough to, 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 to work with. And then um, Shuan and I really started to look, look at the interviews and sort of put them into stuff that we really liked, stuff that was interesting, different categories, and sort of start to see, just gradually put things together. Got you. And with the book, it's up the Singapore book. Um, you write in the introduction, and I quote, as much as possible, what follows is simply the words of the people we interview in the first-person style that they use with us, edited as if they were talking directly to the reader. You added, what you make of them is up to you. So I guess the, I mean, my curiosity here will be, what was behind the decision to exclude that analysis and to present the interviews as they were and leaving the reader, I imagine, to decide and to make sense of the 60 stories um, collectively? Yeah. Partly, you know, I think it's it's sort of my it's sort of characteristic of me as a as a scholar. I kind of on the one side, you know, I, I yeah. So as a scholar, I, I'm aware of how uh, kind of on, on some level dishonest it is to sort of often make you know hard and fast conclusions based based on evidence. We can never have enough evidence. And, you know, even, even historians, even me, like people, you know, you know, I, I go into the archive, I spend literally years reading stuff, you know, and, and in theory, I should, I should know everything, but you know, I don't. So as a scholar, I'm, I'm a bit tentative and I'm, I'm a bit, you know, hesitant to really say like, this is what this means. You know, I, I tend to say, well, this, this might mean that. So I'm, I'm sort of aware of the, the problems of evidence in, in, in scholarly writing and how, the, the the typical way of writing in 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 history at least is the omniscient uh, sort of there is no there is no writer there is just sort of truth right and so especially with with this kind of a project where it is so subjective where we're we're making no claims to objectivity on the contrary we're trying to really engage with subjectivity how individuals experience things i thought it would kind of be wrong to then impose my analysis on individual subjective experience i kind of think you know it's I, I still think it's the correct decision for the reasons i've just enumerated but also because of experiences that i've had afterwards in how people have received it so you know one friend of mine read it and he went oh my god this is so depressing you know i read this and I just, you know, all I can see is these pe people working so hard and their lives are miserable and they're unhappy and, and stuff. And, you know, so that's what he took away from it. I had another person get in touch out of the blue who actually is, you know, works for government. Mm -hmm. And he got in touch and we met and he's like, wow, I found this book really inspiring. You know, this story of all these people really, you know, um, making the best of their situation. 
you know, the really being active and, 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 you know, using all their skills to, you know, overcome challenges and things like that. So I was like, wow, I, sh I should bring you and my buddy together and you guys can <laughs> argue this out. Right. So, you know, I, I think this sort of illustrates it, right. Why, who, you know, clearly there are multiple ways in which you can interpret this book and, uh, Hey guys, read it, see what you think. So if I were to put you in a little bit of a pickle, because in the introduction or in the foreword, um, Prof. Tio Yuan, she penned that you took on the roles of the professor and the ethnographer. And we talked about both um, in the previous questions. I guess if I were to ask you to set those roles aside for a moment and to take the 60 stories as a reader, to describe your experience as a reader, what were two or three themes that stood out to you in terms of hard work and life in Singapore, which was the most significant to you or which were the most poignant from your perspective, not as a professor and ethnographer, but as a reader of the, of the story? Well, yeah, you know, there's different things. I mean, I don't know if uh, people picked up on it, but, you know, often we, we tried to kind of illustrate some of the structures that are at play in, in, in Singapore and in, in the working world and in, in the Singapore world more generally, right? So, you know, there's at different points, we would try to juxtapose interviews and, and sort of, you know, let, let people, again, let people make of them what they, they would, but what I took from them. So, for example, you know, we, in, in the eating section, Singapore is all about food, of course, but, you know, you have a, a, a restaurateur and you have a, 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 a young woman starting out in the hawker business. And, you know, their experiences are, are, are very different. They're, the worlds they inhabit are very different. But if you read carefully, you sort of see, wow, you know, this, the, the, the restaurateur benefited from, I, I hesitate even to say upper middle class background, but oh, that's as far as I'll go. But he, he benefited from a great deal of, of privilege and networks that made his whole career possible. And I'm not saying that he, you know, he's, he's, he's done amazing things with those privileges, with that cultural capital, with these networks that come from going to the right school, uh, with the right people, things like that. And, you know, he's, he's done very well with it, right? And then, you know, you have the, the young woman hockey started, starting out in the hawker business. She has very different forms of social capital, very different networks. She's doing the best with them that she can, right? But there's, there's you know, you, you get the idea that there are structures here at play that these people have no control over. And that's very, very clear in, 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 in Singapore the, the, that these, these, you know, these, these structures operate on, a, on very powerful and in very powerful ways on very basic levels, you know, and, and then they can be very hard to overcome. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, that's one thing, you know, other, other structures that, uh, that, that I might point to, you know, other juxtapositions that, that I, you know, sort of really went, whoa, you know, would be the, uh, you know, there's two, two cleaners, right? And you could say, wow, why repeat, oh, you know, Gerard, there's, why, why would you put two cleaners in there? But of course, one is a Singaporean national and, and one is not. And your nationality obviously very much structures your experience of, of work and life in Singapore. You know, so Again, I, I, for, for me, it was really kind of a, 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 an object lesson in, in the reality of, of these, these sorts of structures here. You know, and I, I'm not saying every place has, has their structures, right? But, uh, you know, by, by comparison, you know, I, uh, other places are a bit, a bit less structured, shall we say. 
and I guess it's a final kind of follow-up question, which is your, personally as a reader again, which is your favorite story of the, of the 60 interviews or which, which, which you like the most of the, the 60 interviews? You know, that's, that's really hard. That's like asking a parent which is their favorite kid. But there's, there's one that I think will, will always kind of stand out for me because, you know, we, we talked about getting into different worlds and the need to, you know, kind of be empathetic with, with others. And I like to think I'm, I'm pretty good at that. I think, you know, I, I, wherever I go in the world, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at talking to different folks, right? And, uh, and yet there's, there's one interview that really struck me as, as allowing me into a world that, that I might not have gotten access to. And that was um, the interview of, like a, I forget exactly what it was titled, but the, the grocery stalker. And, uh, you know, she, she is obviously not someone who was, uh, you know, destined for academic success, shall we say, in, in any system, right? And of course, so, you know, in, in Singapore, she was, uh, you know, channeled towards eventually ITE and, and stuff like that. And now she's working as a grocery stocker. And uh, the, the interview is, it's, is not the most exciting interview in the book, I, I will admit. And the, it's, we cut it down significantly from, from the first one. And yet, for me, it was, it was, it was really cool to, to remember that, you know, there are all sorts of people in the world with, who face all sorts of challenges that, uh, that, that some of us do not, right? obviously done fairly, fairly well in school over the years. And, you know, that's given me incredible advantages. She did not. And so she inhabits a very different, again, a very, very different world. And she is, you know, she seems to be very much at, at peace with that world. And, you know, I think it's, it's commonly assumed that everyone should aspire and work harder and, and stuff like that. But again, she, she's, Fires and, and works hard, but her aspirations and her hard work are, are very different than, than we would normally talk about, normally think about, right? And so for me, that that interview was 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 really cool, and I I you know I I I, I really uh, I I love the fact that you know the, uh, the the interviewer took the time to do it and take that care. You know, any any interview, any real interview is, is sort of an act of, of care. The person who, who gave the interview, you know, was very generous with her time. So, you know, I, I, I love that interview and really appreciate the heck out of the, the student and the, uh, the contributor, the, the interviewee that, that made that possible. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing about the process behind the book. I really enjoyed the book. I've recommended it to many friends and we are reading it for our, our book club as well. So thank you so much for your insights and, and, and uh, look forward to more people reading and discussing the book and taking it from their own subjective um, point of view as well. No, it's been my pleasure. I hope uh, folks read it. And, uh, you know, like me, I, I, I learned a lot through, through this process. Um, you know, my, my partner and co-editor, Shuwen is uh, was was born and lived here, and uh, she will tell you if you ask her how much she learned through it. And that was always the response of the students too. They'd be like, "Wow, prof, you know, we learned a lot through doing this, not necessarily through the you know fancy academic articles that we read, but rather through through this process and through the people we talked to." I feel really privileged to be able to share that with people and, and let other people kind of learn through. So our own learning process, I hope, and uh, maybe even be inspired 
to talk to weird people they might not normally listen to talk to. So um, yeah, thanks again for giving me the chance to to share with you today. And uh, you know, let's, let's do it again when we do the sequel. Okay. Mm-hmm.